0: I don't know when I got this idea that a captain's log would be pretty interesting to read. Probably it was from watching Star Trek as a kid. You know, they do that whole captain's log stardate thing. But in fact, in real life, here on planet Earth, most captain's logs?
1: Usually, usually they're incredibly boring. I mean, it's like, you know, it's really... um,
0: primarily meant to be a record of uh, ships' positions, weather. That's historian Eric Larson. He ran into this when he was writing a book about this hurricane that destroyed the city of Galveston in 1900. He thought that ships at sea might have interesting observations about the formation of this historic weather event, this storm. So he looked at lots of ships' logs. And I found it very frustrating. Very frustrating. It was just like
1: routine references, uh, and, and meanwhile, you know, here's this gigantic storm looming on the horizon. And why? What would they say in their logs? Nothing. <laughs> they would just list, uh, you know, wind speed, wind direction. Sometimes I think that uh, you know, you could be uh, a ship could be you know passing Krakatoa when it was blowing up, and there would be no reference, you know, except maybe a <laughs> sudden sudden change, sudden change in air
0: temperature. The ship's log does record anything unusual that happens on the ship itself, any damage to the ship. But really, it's about legal and administrative responsibilities. If cargo's damaged, insurers are going to need a record, that kind of thing. Which is why this one captain's log that Larson found really stood out. He was researching the sinking of the Lusitania for his book Dead Wake. And he got his hands on the captain's log for the U-boat that sunk the Lusitania in 1915. The prose is business-like and direct, just like most logs, even in translation from the German. But this captain just includes way more stuff, like way more detail, than other logs that Larson had read. When Captain Walter Schwieger spots the Lusitania at 2.20 submarine time, he notes four funnels and two masts.
1: You know, starboard ahead, um, coming from south-southwest, It's steered towards Galley Head, which is a, it's a, a, a maritime landmark there in the Irish Sea. Ship is made out to be a large passenger steamer. Then, he says, submerged to a depth of 11 meters and at full speed, took a course converging. So, so far, now, very matter of fact. Very matter of fact. Now, what's, what's important to know, know here as well is that, meanwhile... What's happening aboard his submarine is total chaos. You know, he's doing a fast dive, which, um, depending on conditions, uh, sometimes involved having members of the crew race to the bow, run to the front of the submarine to add add ballast. To add that extra weight. Yes. So he's doing this very fast dive. There's chaos aboard
0: the, the submarine. There's a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. That human drama doesn't make it into the log. Even this one. 2.35 2.35 p.m. submarine time, the ship that he's chasing turns starboard towards a town called Queenstown. He runs at the ship at high speed, which Larson says was actually not very fast at all. 3.10 p.m. submarine time, the log says he takes a clean bow shot at a distance of 700 meters. He names the kind of torpedo he uses and the depth adjustment he makes, the angle.
1: Torpedo hits starboard side right behind the bridge. You know, there it is. That's, that's the actual firing of the torpedo and the attack. Yeah. Then, though, he starts in with a fairly, a fairly elaborate, at least for a, a German submarine commander, narrative. He's watching this now um, through his periscope. And an unusually strong explosion or detonation takes place with a very strong explosive cloud. The cloud reaches far beyond the front funnel. The explosion of the torpedo must have been accompanied by a second one, parentheses boiler or coal or powder, question mark. The superstructure right above the point of the impact and the bridge are torn asunder. Fire breaks out, and the smoke envelops the high bridge. The ship stops. He's incorrect there, by the way. The ship uh, continued at 18 knots because its engines were knocked out, and you need engines in order to stop a ship. Mm. The ship stops immediately and heels over to starboard very quickly. He says, immersing simultaneously at the bow. Great confusion ensues on board. The boats are made clear, and some of them are lowered to the water. He means like the
0: lifeboats there.
1: Yes, the lifeboats. In doing so, some must have lost their heads. Some boats, full to the capacity, are lowered, touch the water with either stem or stern first,
0: and founder immediately. What's actually happening is they're filling with water, capsizing, sinking. It is a grisly scene. People throwing themselves off the ship into the water and getting sucked underneath the sinking vessel. People getting crushed by the lifeboats. 1198 died. Captain Schwieger watches through his periscope, and he can't actually hear anything. What he's seeing is like this terrible silent movie. 3.25 p.m. submarine time in the log. As it seems as if the steamer will keep above water only a short
1: time, we dived to a depth of 24 meters and ran out to sea. Now, what he means there is he doesn't have to hang around and fire another torpedo. However, here he says the most controversial statement in his log. It would have been impossible for me anyhow to fire a second
0: torpedo into this crushing crowd of humanity trying to save their lives. It would have been impossible for me to fire a second torpedo into this crushing crowd of humanity trying to save their lives. This sentence is controversial because he's never like this anywhere else in the log. Never sympathetic to his enemies this way. He never expresses feelings like this in this log that's going to be read, you know, by his superior officers. Why say this? I don't know
1: what to think. I, I I would like to think that this captain had that level of remorse, right, and that uh, and that he acknowledged it right there at the time. I don't I don't think so. My money is on a a post post patrol revision that he may have added that after the fact, after um, everybody recognized how much the world had been repulsed by this attack on men, women, and children on an on unarmed passenger ship.
0: But if you think about it, even this, it doesn't totally add up. Like, okay, sure, the rest of the world was horrified by the sinking of the Lusitania, but Schwieger lived in Germany, where this was celebrated. A huge victory. Did he want to change the log because he thought, like, okay, maybe they would actually lose the war? And he worried about how this was going to look? Did he just not want this to be his legacy? How he'd be talked about 100 years later, as, you know, I'm doing, like, right this second. Well, today on our program, we bring you Captain's Logs of various sorts. For every story in today's show, we found a terse, business-like record of some kind of some event in the past. Some of these are historic events. Some of them are small and personal. And what we're going to do is we're going to go back and reconstruct what really happened, which is way more complicated and emotional than the logs. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Eric Glass. Stay with us, mateys. One, cookies and Monsters. So part of what's interesting about reading Captain's Logs is then going back and piecing together the true story that they're only sort of telling. And that is what PJ Vogt does in this next story. He starts picking something apart and asking questions, and he ends up somewhere very different from where he starts. Here's PJ.
2: I've got a friend. Let's call him Dale. Dale has a Gmail address that's pretty generic, like dsmith at gmail.com. And people with email addresses like these get a lot of emails that just aren't meant for them, like email wrong numbers. And this happens to him all the time. Last time I saw him, he'd just gotten an email written completely in Spanish from a kid somewhere asking if he could turn in some work late. Dale's a nice guy, but he likes to play pranks. He likes to mess with people. So he answers the emails. Here's one he got a while back. I think it started
3: off hey, ladies to all Calgary area district commissioners and district cookie advisors. And then it started talking about how they had a bunch of stale cookies that they didn't know what to do with and we got to move them off the shelves. And uh,
2: if they're past the expiration date, then
3: we can't use them in the
2: next cookie campaign. The emails continue and Dale learns that the world of professional cookie advising, it's surprisingly bureaucratic. At the top, there's a national cookie advisor But beneath her, there are provincial cookie advisors who report up, and then beneath them, there are district cookie advisors. Dale has no idea what's going on here. But he decides the best thing he could do would be to reply with an intentionally stupid email, detailing a bunch of asinine solutions to the stale cookie problem. He suggests the advisors sharpie over the expiration dates on the packages. He suggests they eat all the stale cookies themselves.
3: In my mind, I was thinking, no one's going to believe this. This is what a stupid email to write to somebody. Who who would hire a person with suggestions like these?
2: Cynthia, who's the Calgary Area Cookie Advisor, responds to Dale's email with complete polite cheerfulness. She sends him a cookie freshness calculator to help him sort his stale cookies from his fresh cookies. So Dale responds with even stupider messages. He was trying to make it more obvious that he was just kidding. I said,
3: "What's the status on the cookies?" Yar, me so hungry with a picture of Cookie Monster. And I think she responded something along the lines of, those orders were supposed to go in a month ago, or did I misunderstand your question?
2: Rather than clarifying, Dale asks her, why are we even in the cookie advising business? He says his clients, they're all about chocolate bars now.
3: And Cynthia responded, chocolate bars question mark question mark question mark question mark all of my other suggestions were met with like oh maybe i i misunderstood or something but this one was very emphatic it was what
2: it was like chocolate bars it actually seemed like dale had maybe touched a nerve because after that cookie advisor world went completely quiet dale was bothered by this the original email he'd gotten had been meant for a woman named debbie what if he'd gotten debbie in trouble or even just made her look bad i'm a little i'm a little afraid i'd like to
3: think that Um, Oh, they just got it sorted out, and and now it's funny, and and Debbie is in on the joke. You know, just people trying to do their cookie job.
2: I reached out to the woman who'd been trying to email Debbie, Cynthia, because I wanted to find out if Dale's prank had hurt anybody. Hello? Hello? Hi, Cynthia? Yes, it's me. Hi, it's PJ. Cynthia has multiple sclerosis, and it can be hard for her to talk. So her friend Sheila volunteered to help out. I read them the emails. And of course, the obvious solution is to eat them during our next member meeting. Please discuss with the rest of area, and I will forward your decision on to National. Thanks so much. Do you remember getting that?
4: You know, I don't, but...
0: We, we get a lot of questions um, all across Alberta at, at cookie time. Often they have suggestions that... Don't always fly. <laughs> so we find, we find a way to respond to them as best we can.
2: <laughs> Cynthia and Sheila explained that they were part of Girl Guides. In the U.S., we have Girl Scouts. Most everywhere else in the world, they call them Girl Guides. If you know anything about Girl Scouts, you won't be too surprised by this. But Cynthia and Sheila have a way of talking that is just unrelentingly positive. It's just the Girl Guide way. That's why Cynthia was so patient with Dale. It was her job. But she was also very patient with me. Even as for reasons that I don't quite understand, I found myself explaining to her the entire pattern of events that had led Dale to email her. I guess the email was meant for Debbie, but it went to a Dale.
4: Oh! Now it's starting to make a little bit of sense.
2: This helpful, sunny tone, this girl guide voice, is hardwired into their original mission statement, which reads, quote, a guide smiles and sings under all difficulties, end quote. Smiling and singing... Under all difficulties. This sounds ridiculous to me. Or at least it did. Until I heard a truly crazy story about this exact thing Girl Guides smiling and singing through incredibly extreme circumstances. I first heard about it from a woman named Janie Hampton. She's kind of a girl guide expert. She wrote a book about them.
5: I have to admit, when I started writing the book, I thought, you know, I'm going to make this a bit of a satire and laugh at them.
2: She says, laughing at girl guides is pretty easy. Because most people think of them as not particularly cool. Too sincere.
5: What we call naff nowadays. What's naff? But those um, sort of unfashionable, nerdy.
2: So Janie sets out to tease some nerds. But then she starts researching. And one day she's deep in the Girl Guide's archive in their London headquarters. And she finds this old notebook. It's small, 7 by 10. And the book's a handwritten log of nearly everything one Girl Guide troop did years ago
5: and it said we did skipping and we did knots and we did all sorts of jolly things. And then I came across this song that they'd written and it said, we sang our song yesterday and it went, we might have been shipped to Timbuktu, we might have been shipped to Kalamazoo. It's not repatriation, nor is it yet starvation. It's simply concentration in chefu And I thought, what on earth does that mean? Concentration in Chifu.
2: Janie does not know where Chifu is, but she's sure it's not in England, so she looks it up. Chifu is, was, a place in China, a coastal city. It's a good 7,000 miles from London. According to the guide's logbook, the song had been written and performed by a group of girl guides for a concert on Christmas Day, 1942. The Christmas concert, Janie discovers, was held in Chifu, but not at a school. The Girl Guides sang their song in a concentration camp. Janie was baffled. Why would a concentration camp in China have a singing Girl Guide troupe? So Janie starts digging, and she finds one who was there, an actual witness born in China who ended up in the same camp as these Girl Guides, this Belgian guy.
6: Leopold Polder, 74 years old.
2: The problem is, it turns out he has absolutely no memory of his time there.
6: I tried to remember something, but nothing comes back to me.
2: Nothing, except for this nightmare he used to have when he was a kid. At the time, it hadn't made sense to him, but later, he thought it must have taken place at the camp. What was the dream that you would have?
6: Well, I'm there in the hot sun, the blue sky. It's a brown slope, it's a brown earth. And there are big stones next to myself dirty earth and people running all over the place.
2: Are there sounds?
6: No sound. Absolutely no sound. Somebody picks me up and then I wake up. That's, that's all I remember. That dream came back very often.
2: Leopold grows up and as an adult, he wants to know about this place that he used to dream about. And so he builds a website. He invites people to write in with memories of the camp. And the story he learns is pretty crazy.
1: Japan's latest invasion
2: of China, which has already lasted two years, is war on a huge scale. So I did not know this. But during World War II, when Japan occupied China, they built concentration camps that were filled with American and British and other European civilians.
1: The Japanese put their prisoners of war to work. Civilians
2: who'd been living in China. One of those camps was called Weishen. That was Leopold's camp. And among the inmates at Weishen were a group of children. They were American and British. They were mostly the kids of missionaries. And they'd been studying at a boarding school called Chifu. Japanese troops invaded Chifu and captured the kids and eventually brought them to Weishen.
5: With their teachers, but no parents. So about 150 children who for four years were in this camp. And the teachers had very sensibly taken with them, um, books, paper, musical instruments.
2: And of course, one more thing.
5: Brownie uniforms, guide uniforms, all the things they thought, we're going to need this sort of thing to keep the kids occupied.
2: In the Japanese camps, there was very little food. Prisoners died of starvation. In Weishan, imprisoned monks would smuggle in eggs and then everybody would share them. And then they'd also have the kids eat the ground-up eggshells just to get some extra calcium. The logbook Janie had found was the record kept by one of the Girl Guide's leaders. The leaders were called Brown Owls. This one was a woman in her 20s. And the tone of her writing was the exact same cheerful, impervious-to-bad-news tone that Dale's cookie advisor email thread had had. This is the entry from the day they were marched into the camp. Hello. What's this? Behind bars? Yes, it's Shen Camp. Well, I guess there's a good deal of fun to be got out of this. Just the place to earn some badges. According to the logbook, the Brown Owl ran the troop as if it were any other girl guide unit, concentration camp or not. They were all told,
5: it doesn't matter how disgusting the food is, we still want good table manners. It doesn't matter how hungry you are, you're not going to steal. You're still going to do a good deed every day and help other people.
2: Obviously, the grim sadness of life in a concentration camp should have overpowered this miniature world that the brown owls were trying to build for their young girls. But according to Janie, that's not what happened. Instead, it was the girl guides who started to exert an influence on the adults around them. They led by example.
5: It made a difference to all the adults in this camp and kept them going. The whole atmosphere was better because they had this very strong promise that they wouldn't stop smiling. They wouldn't give up. They would carry on singing songs. They would insist on everybody washing.
2: This is the point where I wondered, was this true? I didn't think that anybody was necessarily lying to me. I just thought probably the brown owl had left the bad stuff out of her logbook. I figured she'd put the best possible spin on an awful situation. That's what girl guides do, right? Hi. Fortunately, there's a woman who's still alive and remembers Wei Shan. Her name is Mary Previty. She lives in New Jersey. I visit her with my producer, Fia Benin. What
7: can I tell you? Oh, by the way, can I pour you some tea? I am so bad about this. Oh, no. I get so busy talking. That, that Mary
2: Previty is a small, beautiful, 82-year-old woman. She's also one of the happiest people I've ever met. I don't know if anybody I've interviewed has ever fully broken into song, unprompted. Mary did. Seven times. Also, unlike Leopold, Mary has a phenomenal memory. She told me about the day that Japanese troops arrived at her boarding school.
7: The day after Pearl Harbor was attacked, the Japanese showed up on the doorstep of our school. They put seals with Japanese writing on everything, the tables, the chairs, the pianos, the desks. Everything belonged to the great emperor of Japan. And then they put armbands on us. Everyone had to wear an armband, A for American,
2: B for British, whatever our nationality was. The girls were eventually transferred into Aishan. Mary became a concentration camp girl guide. This was over 70 years ago. But when Mary talks about the camp, she sounds like she's still there. Like she's 12 years old again. She said this story about the brown owls insisting on good table manners. Absolutely true.
7: So you're eating some kind of glop out of uh, maybe boiled animal grain, because gaoliang is a broom corn that the Chinese feed to their animals, was often what they fed us. And, and you're eating it with out of a soap dish or a tin can, and here comes Miss Stark up behind us, one of our teachers. Mary Taylor, do not slouch over your food while you are eating. Do not talk while you have food in your mouth. And there are not two sets of manners, one set of manners for the princesses in Buckingham Palace and another set of manners for the Weishian concentration camp.
2: Mary was separated from her parents, unsure of when she'd be released, surrounded by attack dogs and men with guns. She says that she spent a lot of her time just thinking about earning merit badges. In the winter, it would get cold, freezing, but no heat was provided to the prisoners by the guards. Instead, Mary and her friends had to go collect leftover coal shavings from the guards' quarters.
7: I remember now the ritual of going to Japanese quarters to get the coal dust and carry it back.
2: Like like making a new pencil from pencil shavings. Except the coal was heavy, and it had to be passed bucket by bucket in a line of girl guides. Then the shavings were mixed with dust and water and dried in the sun. It was long, hard work. And then at the end of it, you still had to go use that recycled coal in a pot-bellied stove and keep the stove lit so that everybody would be warm. It sounded horrible like a childhood from a Charles Dickens novel. Except Mary remembers it as being surprisingly fun, a game she could win.
7: I and my partner, Marjorie Harrison, we won the competition in our dormitory of which stove-lighting team made the pot-bellied stove in the winter turn red-hot more times than any other girl in the camp. Well, you know, here I am, 82 years old, and what do I choose to tell you? I won the pot belly turned red more times with me and Marjorie Harrison than any other girl in our dorm.
2: When you describe it, it sounds like you're describing summer camp instead of describing like a concentration camp. Did it feel like summer camp? Did you no, ever?
7: No, I never was in a summer camp, so I can't give you a depend. <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely not. When you, when you had guard dogs, bayonet drills, electrified wires, barrier walls, uh, pillboxes with, with guards, armed guards in them, you know, you weren't in a summer camp. There was. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this was fun city. I'm telling you, we lived a miracle where grown-ups preserved our childhood.
2: There's reference in the logbook to the trouble the adults were having keeping it together, but you'd have to know to look for it. A scout leader writes one entry that reads, Dear me, what a tragedy. Brown owl had an attack of neuralgia. Let's hope she's better for our meeting. Neuralgia is a nerve disorder, but what that actually meant was that the brown owl was having a nervous breakdown. Years later, Mary went and tracked down one of the grown-ups.
7: I said, Miss Carr, what were you feeling? When we were in a concentration camp, well, all the grown-ups in the camp knew about the rape of Nanking, the atrocities that the the guards, that the the soldiers had done when they came to the southern, southern city of Nanking.
2: Japanese soldiers went door to door, systematically raping and killing tens of thousands of Chinese civilians.
7: So they knew what could happen. The teachers knew what could happen. So I said to Ms. Carr, what were you feeling? She said, well, I would pray to God that when they lined us up along the death trenches and they were outside the camp, when they lined us up to shoot us so our bodies would fall into the death pits, that I would be one of the first so I didn't have to see it.
2: So there were two sets of prayers. At night, the grown ups, many of them not much older than the kids themselves, prayed grimly for a fast death. And then they woke up in the morning and they sung psalms with the kids, set to bouncy camp melodies.
7: It was like you you weren't gonna be afraid if you could sing about it. We would sing, Day is done, gone the sun, from the sea, from the hills. From the sky, all is well, safely rest, God is nigh. How can you be afraid when you're singing about all is well, safely rest, God is nigh? How could you be afraid of that? So we were constantly putting things into music. Often, you know, there was a little bit of a twist of f- fun to it. Um, one of the songs that we, we sang was, We might have been shipped to Timbuktu We might have been shipped to Kalamazoo It's not repatriation Nor is it yet stagnation It's only concentration in Chifu
2: There probably aren't many places on earth where you have less reason to be cheerful than a concentration camp. But it turns out, in a place like that, being able to be cheerful, to have a positive outlook, it's not dopey or silly. It's how you survive. How you tell the story matters.
7: I can still, for example, uh, the, one, of the, one of the things that we sang when the Japanese were marching us into concentration camp was the first verse of Psalm 46. God is our refuge, our refuge and our strength. And on it goes, in trouble we will not be afraid. All of these words just sung into our hearts. That sticks. It's like you've got a groove sticking in the gramophone record. I am safe. I am safe. I am safe. That was just profound.
2: The first Chifu Brownies warded off despair for four years. Until finally, on August 17th, 1945, they were rescued.
7: It was a windy day.
2: Mary remembers the American plane flying low over the camp.
7: And then the parachutes falling from the sky... All I knew was I was running to find whoever was that was dropping out of the sky beyond the barrier walls.
6: I'm there in the hot sun, the blue sky. It's a brown slope, it's a brown earth.
7: And the people went berserk.
6: People running all over the place. People were crying, screaming, dancing. Somebody picks me up and then I wake up.
2: Leopold says that the nightmare that used to haunt him is just his memory of that day, of being a four-year-old, lost and wandering around a riot of freed concentration camp survivors. Most of the people who were there on Liberation Day are now dead. One of the dormitories at Wei is a memorial, but mostly, this place exists as a footnote in some books, on a website designed by a Belgian man, and in the memories of the remaining survivors. It's a half-disappeared world with a strong pull on the people who do still remember it. A couple weeks ago at the grocery store, I watched a gang of brownie scouts rush down the pet food aisle. They had their uniforms on, covered in merit badges for public speaking and backyard astronomy. They were happy and safe in their own world, a million miles from Wei Shen. I wondered if they knew what they might be capable of.
0: PJ vote. He's the co-host of the podcast Reply All, where the story came from and which I am a big fan of. It is one of the best new podcasts out there. You can subscribe to Reply All on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The girl guide in that story, Mary Previty, has spent the last 20 years tracking down the soldiers who rescued her. And she's meeting the final one on her list in China next week. Coming up, Aziz Ansari thinks you do not know how to text. And when he makes the case, I have to say, I think you're going to believe him. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different stories on that theme. Today's show, Captain's Log, stories where we take the unemotional facts in logs and records of various sorts, and we look behind them at the much more emotional, complicated stories that they are so stoically documenting. We've arrived at Act Two of our program, Act Two, Romancing the Phone, Recently, uh, my wife and I, we were texting some things to each other that were so intense that at the end, she suggested we just delete all of our texts that we had ever written to each other ever. And it wasn't like we thought that anybody else was going to see our texts. It's like we just didn't want them to exist in this world anymore. We wanted that history of our conversation to vanish forever from the face of the earth, never think about it again. You know, it's like text messages are this little history. It's like a logbook of our interactions with people. And of course, usually they're not so emotional. Usually they're pretty terse, which totally makes them perfect for today's program because their terseness behind it, there can be a whole story. And recently, a sociologist started to study this. This was not very traditional sociology. The sociologist Eric Kleinenberg at NYU teamed up with a comedian, Aziz Ansari, to examine the texts that people send to each other right when they start dating. And they put out a book with their findings. It's called Modern Romance. And what they did, they spoke to a few hundred people. The research was conducted in focus groups, like 10 to 20 people in a room in eight different cities. And then sometimes they would do a version of these focus groups on stage in front of audiences in New York and Los Angeles. What they would do is Aziz would get up and he would do a little stand-up. And then he would introduce Eric, like Eric was the next comic who was coming on stage. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Eric Kleinenberg. So Eric would come up, and he would talk a little bit about previous work that he'd done, and he would drop this statistic that in 1950, 23% of American adults were single.
8: And today, about half of all adults are single. About half of all adults are single. And I live in Manhattan, and in Manhattan, one out of every two households has just one person. Several
0: people in the audience go, hmm, See, I got a hmm, Aziz.
9: That's like Eric's, those are like big laughs for sociologists. Where people are like, ooh, gasps. gasps. Free, uh, I imagine like backstage at like sociology conferences is just like, man, I got so many gas. Like, <laughs> do you hear how many gasps there were? Do you hear how many rumblings there were after I dropped that statistic? Those are good stats, man. Those are great stats.
0: Now, what Eric and Aziz were interested in was exactly what it is that people say to each other when they want to ask somebody out on a date. So at these shows, Aziz and Eric would ask people for their phones, and then they would take their phones and they would read their text messages out loud to the crowd. Those texts, that log, that was the raw data for their research. And if you think about it from a research perspective, texts are great because they are a real-time record of what actually transpired, which is way more reliable and accurate than asking people, you know, later on to recall what happened. One of our producers, Jonathan Manhevar, dove into that data, and he now explains how those shows would go. A quick warning uh, before he starts, we're talking about dating, so there's nothing explicit in this story at all, but we acknowledge the existence of sex. Anyway, here's Jonathan. This
4: particular focus group slash comedy show was recorded at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York. The room had been split up so that all the guys were on one side, the girls were on the other. And pretty quickly into the show, Aziz asked for volunteers to come up on stage. He and Eric specifically wanted guys who had recently made first contact with a woman they were interested in. How had the guys made their initial approach? So four guys get up on stage, and then one by one, they hand over their phones to Aziz.
9: Pull up your uh, text message exchange with these these women, and what we want you to do is scroll to the very first message you sent to the women.
4: Aziz starts reading texts, and the first guy... He'd been set up by his boss, not over text, but over email. The email was sent to both him and his potential date. And it just said, "Cocktails, go get some.". So this guy emailed the woman.
9: You said, uh, "Hey, uh, Jared, that's his boss, has sure has a way of setting things up dot 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 LOL." Would love to get a drink. When is it good for you? Early next week or following Thanksgiving? My number is blah, blah, blah. By the way, if that is an easier way of communicating. And then she texted you, correct? A week later. A week week later? (laughs) Everyone's like, that why'd you do that? So, okay. So she said, Hey, Zach! It's Colette. Jared's friend. I'm so, so sorry. I completely lost track of your email. and Forgot to respond, but I... No one believes her. <laughs> How many people don't believe that she really lost track?
4: No hands go up.
9: That's insane. That's, there's not one person that believes that someone could lose track of something anymore. Okay, so she said, "I'm sorry, I lost track of your email and forgot to respond, but I'd love to grab a drink if you're free this week. And then, uh, so she wrote that on Friday at 1245. So the guy wrote back. Hey, Colette, dot, dot, dot. Would love to get a drink, dot, dot, dot. Wednesday works well for me, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) How about you?
4: Question mark. Okay. Okay, so Aziz moves on to guy number two. um, Because what's about to happen is that we're going to hear all of their initial attempts. And then the women in the audience are going to vote on who did it best. Guy number two met a woman on the train one night. The next morning, he sent the message. This is what he said. Hey, Audrey, this
9: is Joe. Nice meeting you real quick last night. How are you? Question mark. So
4: that's his first message. And then... uh, Moving on to guy number three. He had met a woman at an NYU alumni uh, event. uh,
9: And then you wrote a message um, a few days later. um, And this is two messages. Okay, you said, Hey there, how did your Thanksgiving feast turn out? Question mark. Here's a shot of the spread I put together. I'd say it came out all right. Smiley face. (laughs) Yo...
4: I know it's tiny, but I promise it looks delicious. Guy number four got someone's number at a wedding. She left the wedding, and then not long after, he texted her.
9: This was, was this like, a, hey, this is my number type text? Or, okay, so you say, what's up, it's Theo. And then, <laughs> that's the voice your text has. And then she said, Hey, nothing much. Just hey NM, just heading back home. How's the party going? And then you said a few minutes later, it's fun, you left too early. Ha <laughs> ha. This was like F- I thought we were born tonight. <laughs> was that like what you were really thinking? Like, uh, we well, you know, we could have just uh... so so then the next night you send her the equivalent of your first contact, if you will, and you say, It was cool meeting you last night, I'll be back in Cali in two weeks for winter break. We should hang out sometime. Ha <laughs> ha <laughs> it wasn't necessarily a Young Jeezy, ha ha. It was just, it was just a ha ha.
4: So, four guys. Which one did this best? Aziz and Eric turned to the women in the audience.
9: Why don't we see uh, which one do you guys like the most? Uh, women in the,
4: just the women in the
9: audience. Um, clap if your first, your favorite is this.
4: So the clear winner, the guy who wrote about Thanksgiving. Hey there, how'd your Thanksgiving feast turn out? Here's a shot of the spread I put together.
8: But could we find out from someone here, like, what is so good about that text? Like, if you voted for that text, what Yeah, raise your hand and...
4: A woman in the audience who's a little off mic says, it gets the conversation going. You asked a question, and he said something about his Thanksgiving, and it made you want to comment on it. Okay, anybody else? It was personal, another woman says. "He remembered what you talked about.
9: Personal, remember what you talked about.
8: You guys taking notes over there, by the way? Same time, we kind of need to know what didn't work out so well with the text. What did you not like about... um, Oh, yeah, you're all the way in the back.
4: The woman in the back doesn't like the what's up guy who met someone at a wedding and texted her after she left. In fact, no one liked that text. It got zero claps. The woman says, it sounded like he just wanted to have sex. He's saying, I don't live here, but I'm going to be back. Let's hang out. But I don't want to talk to you till then.
9: What do you mean? Why do you think he doesn't want to talk to her till then? he would have asked a question. He would have asked a question. Did anyone else, does anyone else feel like that? Ask? Guys are like, must ask questions.
4: Other than asking questions, Aziz and Eric have some very clear advice about the kinds of texts their research shows works when you're trying to ask someone out. Number one. Invite the person to something specific at a specific time. Two, say something that refers back to an earlier conversation you had, so it's clear you were listening. And three, say something funny. Aziz and Eric say most guys surprisingly do not instinctually get this. They don't do it. But after dropping this knowledge at the show, women were invited to come up on stage to share texts they'd gotten from guys. And coincidentally, the very first woman received a text from a guy that followed two of the three rules.
9: This was his first text to you. Hey, how was the rest of your Thanksgiving? Question mark. You want to grab a drink tomorrow around 730 in LES? Question mark. That's a pretty... Whoa. She just said, he's good. That's the bar for He's Good. How was your Thanksgiving? Do you want to get a drink Wednesday? Oh my God, who is this God?
4: <laughs> that guy got a date. Okay, what about Another woman got person? a text Who's that was at the opposite end of the spectrum. The guy pretty much does everything wrong from the start.
9: Okay, so his first message, hi. And then you have to go, hi, is this Connor? And then he goes, <laughs> I mean, this dude doesn't even want to tell his name. Hey. He said, hi, is this Connor? And he goes, this is. (laughs) Connor, you want to say some (laughs) s***? Hi, what's going on? I'm actually just waking up. (laughs) Picking my mix up for my morning. So far it's consisting of goodbye horses and big (laughs) pimping. And you're still, like, being very nice. Oh, nice. Well, what are you up to tonight? Tonight, I'm not sure. I may want to eat some mushrooms... (laughs) No one is like, yeah, you should go out with this guy. Everyone's like, good decision, way to go.
4: Okay, so to review, there are three rules. Ask a question, make a specific plan, be funny. In fact, this night at the UCB Theater, Aziz asked guys in the crowd to text someone they were interested in. Right now, armed with this new knowledge. And just before the end of the show... Is, is it? any of you guys get a
9: message back? Anybody? that oh, You did? On. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So you said, um, hey, I'm finally free from the horrors of math. Do you want to check out a new bar on Franklin next week? Question mark. She wrote back six minutes later. Yeah, for sure. Exclamation. I'm down. Also, next Thursday is my birthday, so I'm hoping to party it up next weekend. Smiley face. Holy s***. Sh- we were right. Thank you guys so much for coming out. We really appreciate it.
0: he's sorry. the book that he wrote with Eric Kleinenberg is called Modern Romance Jonathan Menhivar is one of the producers of our show Three on a quiet street in Richmond. So all through this hour today, we have uh, documents that describe big dramatic things in the most just-the-facts-ma'am language possible, like a captain's log usually does. And we found this article from 1853. That's a good example of this. In the article, a writer named William Chambers went out to witness and report on slave auctions. Apparently enough people had written about these in a very melodramatic and sensationalistic way. The Chambers felt like somebody needs to go out and give a true
8: factual account. Everything is described precisely as it occurred, without passion or prejudice. It would not have been difficult to be sentimental on a subject which appeals so strongly to the feelings. But I preferred telling the simple truth.
0: Our excerpts of Chambers' article were read for us by actor John Ellison Connolly. By 1853, slavery was controversial, and Chambers opposed it. He was a Scottish guy, an outsider. And so we spent a couple days going from one auction shop to another in Richmond, Virginia, Cambridge explains that he'd seen advertisements for slave sales. And when he went to the addresses, he found a narrow short street between two main streets in the city, brick houses on either side, where there were a few small auction shops. On this particular day, it was pretty empty. The shops were identifiable by little red flags that hung outside their doors, and pinned to each flag was a piece of paper listing the men, women, and children who were going to be sold that day.
8: Conceive the idea of a large shop with two windows and a door between... No shelving or counters inside, the interior a spacious, dismal apartment, not well swept, the only furniture, a desk at one of the windows, and a bench at one side of the shop, three feet high, with two steps to it from the floor. Conceive the idea of this dismal-looking place, with nobody in it but three Negro children who, as I entered, were playing at auctioneering each other." An intensely black little negro of four or five years of age was standing on the bench or block as it is called with an equally black girl about a year younger by his side whom he was pretending to sell by bids to another black child who was rolling about the floor. My appearance did not interrupt the merriment. The little auctioneer continued his play and appeared to enjoy the joke of selling the girl who stood demurely by his side. Fifty dollar for the gal, fifty dollar, fifty dollar. I sell this here fine gal for fifty dollar, was uttered with appropriate gestures in imitation, doubtless, of the scenes he had seen enacted daily on the spot. I spoke a few words, but was scarcely understood, and the fun went on as if I'd not been present. So I left them, happy and rehearsing what was likely soon to be their own fate. At 9.30 a.m., at another store,
0: Chambers is approached by a salesman and asked if he's there to buy a slave. Chambers explains that he is not. He's simply there to witness the sales and gather information, which seems fine with the salesman. A lanky man sits down next to Chambers, wearing what Chambers calls a wide-awake hat, which is a hat with a kind of low, round crown and a wide brim.
8: Looking towards the door, I observed the subjects of sale. The man and boy indicated by the paper on the red flag enter together. Whence, as the day was chilly, they edged themselves towards the fire in the corner where I was seated. I was now between the two parties, the white man on the right and the old and young Negro on the left, and I waited to see what would take place. The sight of the Negroes at once attracted the attention of Wide Awake. He kept keenly eyeing the pair as if to see what they were good for. Under this searching gaze, the man and boy were a little abashed, but said nothing. Their appearance had little of the repulsiveness we are apt to associate with the idea of slaves. They were dressed in a gray woolen coat, pants, and waistcoat, colored cotton neckcloths, clean shirts, coarse woolen stockings, and stout shoes. Moved by a sudden impulse, wide awake left his seat and rounding the back of my chair, began to grasp at the man's arms, as if to feel their muscular capacity. He then examined his hands and fingers, and last of all, told him to open his mouth and show his teeth, which he did in a submissive manner. Having finished these examinations, wide awake resumed his seat. I asked the elder Negro what was his age. He said he did not know. I next inquired how old the boy was. He said he was seven years of age. On asking the man if the boy was his son, he said he was not. He was his cousin.
0: Chambers and the man that he calls Wide Awake wait around for a while for the auction to start and then get tired of waiting, and they leave the shop to check out another one further
8: up the street. Here, according to the announcement on the paper stuck to the flag, there were to be sold a woman and three children, a young woman, three men, a middle aged woman, and a little boy. Already a crowd had met. A few were seated near a fire on the right hand side, and others stood round an iron stove in the middle of the apartment. The whole place had a dilapidated appearance. From a back window there was a view into a ruinous courtyard, beyond which, in a hollow accessible by a side lane, stood a shabby brick house on which the word jail was inscribed in large black letters on a white ground. I imagined it to be a depot for the reception of Negroes. On my arrival, and while making these preliminary observations, the lots for sale had not made their appearance. In about five minutes afterwards, they were ushered in, one after the other, under the charge of a mulatto who seemed to act as a principal assistant. I saw no whips, chains, or any other engine of force, nor did such appear to be required. All the lots took their seats on two long forms near the stove. None showed any signs of resistance, nor did anyone utter a word. Their manner was that of perfect humility and resignation." As soon as all were seated, there was a general examination of their respective merits by feeling their arms, looking into their mouths. Yet there was no abrupt rudeness in making these examinations. No coarse or domineering language was employed. The three Negro men were dressed in the usual manner, in gray woolen clothing. The woman with three children excited my peculiar attention, She was neatly attired, with a colored handkerchief bound around her head, and wore a white apron over her gown. Her children were all girls, one of them a baby at the breast three months old, and the others two and three years of age respectively, rigged out with clean white pinafores. There was not a tear or an emotion visible in the whole party. Everything seemed to be considered as a matter of course— and the change of owners was possibly looked forward to with as much indifference as ordinary hired servants anticipate a removal from one employer to another. While intending purchasers were proceeding with personal examinations of the several lots, I took the liberty of putting a few questions to the mother of the children. The following was our conversation. "'Are you a married woman?' "'Yes, sir.' "'How many children have you had?' Seven. Where is your husband? In Madison County. When did you part from him? On Wednesday, two days ago. Were you sorry to part from him? Yes, sir, she replied with a deep sigh. My heart was almost broke. Why is your master selling you? I don't know. He wants money to buy some land. Suppose he sells me for that. There might not be a word of truth in these answers. I had no means of testing their correctness. But the woman seemed to speak unreservedly, and I am inclined to think that she said nothing but what, if necessary, could be substantiated.
0: When the woman and her three children are put up on the auction block, bidding starts at $850, but it only gets up to 890 That won't do, gentlemen, the auctioneer says. I cannot take such a low price. And the woman and her children uh, step down from the block. is the equivalent of nearly $26,000 today. Chambers reprints a price list. That's what one adult would sell for, not an adult and three kids. The most interesting passage in Chambers' report is where he speculates about what the slaves feel about all this.
8: Now, in this passage, he starts fine. There was an entire absence of emotion in the looks of men, women, and children thus seated, preparatory to being sold. This does not correspond with the ordinary accounts of slave sales, which are represented as tearful and harrowing. And then uh, Chambers takes a turn. He says something that is really hard to imagine somebody today writing. My belief is that none of the parties felt deeply on the subject, or at least that any distress they experienced was but momentary, soon passed away and was forgotten. One of my reasons for this opinion rests on a trifling incident which occurred. While waiting for the commencement of the sale, one of the gentlemen present amused himself with a pointer dog, which, at command, stood on its hind legs and took pieces of bread from his pocket. These tricks greatly entertained the row of Negroes, old and young, and the poor woman, whose heart three minutes before was almost broken, now laughed as heartily as anyone. Today,
0: this just seems wrong headed. Of course, you could be deeply affected by something you're going through and still you know, laugh at a dog doing tricks. Like, of course, any of us can contain both those things at the same time. It's weird that Chambers doesn't see that. A scholar who's written about Chambers told me that Chambers was actually not a keen observer of people in his writing. He doesn't do much character observation when he writes. So it's possible he just was not super perceptive about people's feelings. But also, when you read more of Chambers, it's clear he thinks that white people are superior to black people. He wrote, quote, a black man is only a kind of man. He stands upright on two legs, has hands to work, where his clothes can cook his food, a point not reached by monkeys, Chambers writes. Perhaps, Chambers says, there's something wrong with his craniological development, which I guess he means not as smart. So he went on a mission to document the reality of slavery for his readers. He was that enlightened. He was that against it. But that was as far as he went. On his visit to Richmond, he was not able to see the people in front of him for what they really were, which was, of course, exactly the same as him. Deck four, a brief history of us. So to close today's show, we asked a fiction writer, Edgar Carrot, to create a short story that works like a captain's log, that's told completely through a series of unemotional facts. Here's what he wrote. It's read for us by actress Sue Scott.
10: At first, we were a cell, then an amoeba, then a fish. And after a very long and frustrating era, we became a lizard. That was the era when, as we recall, the earth felt soft and unsteady beneath our feet. So we climbed a tree. Up there in the treetops, we felt secure. At some point, we climbed down and started walking upright and speaking. And as soon as we began speaking, we just couldn't stop. After that, we watched a lot of TV. It was a fantastic era. We always laughed in the wrong places, and people stared and said, What's so funny? And we didn't even bother answering. That's how little we cared. We promised ourselves we'd find a job we loved. And when that didn't work out, we settled for a job we didn't hate. And we felt lucky. And then unlucky. And then lucky again. And suddenly, our parents were dying. Then they died. A second before they departed, we held their hand really tight and told them we forgave them for everything everything and our voice broke when we said that because we weren't convinced we were telling the truth and we were afraid they could sense it less than a year after that our son was born and he also climbed a tree and felt secure up there and he came down at some point too and went off to college then we were left alone and it started getting cold Not like the other time, eons ago, when we hid in burrows and peered out while the dinosaurs froze to death, but still depressingly cold. So we went to a drama workshop, because our friends said it would do us good. They gave us a series of improv exercises. And in the first one, we poisoned each other, and in the second one, we cheated on each other. And in the third one, the instructor, who spoke English with a heavy indistinct accent said, now switch partners. And within seconds, it wasn't us anymore. The new man who was my partner said, let's do a sketch where you're a baby and I give birth to you and nurse you and protect you from all evil. And I said, sure, why not? But by the time he'd finished giving birth to me and nursing me and protecting me from all evil, our time was up. And the instructor, with a strange accent, asked if the exercise had made any primal memory surface. And I said it hadn't, because I didn't want to admit that it had brought back warm, primordial memories from millions of years ago, from before we even emerged from the water. Afterwards, at home, we got into an argument over something really dumb and had the biggest fight we'd ever had since we were created— We yelled and cried and broke things. The kind of things that if you'd asked us a day earlier, we'd have told you were unbreakable. Then we packed our stuff up in a suitcase and shoved whatever didn't fit in the suitcase into plastic grocery bags. And we dragged all that behind us like homeless people to the apartment where a very wealthy friend of ours lived. And he put a sheet out on his plush sofa for us. The friend told us that it might seem like the end of the world now, but by morning, all the rage and hurt feelings would melt away and everything would look different. And we said no. Something had been broken. Something had been torn apart. Something we would never be able to mend or forgive. The friend lit an imported Slim cigarette and said, Okay, maybe so, but can I just ask, why do you keep talking in the plural? Instead of answering, I just looked around and realized I was alone. Truly, completely alone.
0: Sue so Scott, reading a story by Edgar Carrot. Edgar's latest book is a memoir called The Seven Good Years. History was translated from Hebrew by Jessica Cohn. The program is produced today by Zoe Chase and myself with Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffi Walt, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Manhero, Brian Reed, Robin Simeon, Alyssa Shipp, and Nancy Updike. Editing help from Joel Lovell. production help from Manuel Jochi, Seth Lind's our Operations Director, Emily Condon's our production manager, Matt Tierney's our technical director, Elise Bergerson's our office manager, Elna Baker, Scout Stories for our show, research help today from Michelle Harris and Christopher Switzerland, music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Kevin Miller, John Dickerson, Aileen Fife, Via Bennon, Tim Howard, Maida Harris Campbell. Tammy Proctor, Captain Nicholas Cooper, Bill Barker, Andy Chase, and Genevieve Lemoyne, Breakmaster Cylinder did piano scoring for PJ Vogt's story. Michael Leonhardt arranged, and then he and Dan Levine performed the little horn number in that story. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he donated blood this week, and when it was all over... I don't know. He told me he was really feeling out of
3: sorts. I said, What's the status on the cookies? Yar, me
0: so hungry. I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life.